there, crypto fans, and welcome back to the New Blocks, episode 14, talking about AMM's automated market makers today. Kevin, welcome back to the show, buddy. Always a pleasure to have you here and excited to dive into a new topic per usual. Always. Every week, this is the highlight of it. Uh, I just enjoy talking about crypto, and I enjoy- I know you do. I can see that look on your face. We've spent enough time hanging out together that you get you, know the you get genuine joy out of talking about this stuff, man. And it's infectious. It gives me joy to see you giving joy. I appreciate it. That was a weird string of words. Uh, I got news this week, though, bud. Big you stuff do. in the Zyori world. Finally announced. Um, I am full-time crypto now. I'm working in the space. I got a job over at uh, Sky Mavis, the co-founders of uh, the co-founders, the founders of Axie Infinity. Um, it's a Pokemon-inspired game with collectible creatures. You can breed, kind of like Crypto Kitties, except you can do even more of them. You can battle them. There's a whole land gameplay uh, concept in the pipeline. There was a little beta test that was public a while ago. You can put uh, Project K into YouTube and see a whole bunch of stuff about that. It's a whole universe of these collectible little creatures that can kill each other and farm resources, and uh, they're all NFTs. So it's all blockchain-based. Uh, I wrote an article about it. You can find on Zyori.tv, and uh, I'm pretty damn excited about it. So exciting times ahead, buddy. And uh, I'll be honest, I've never been more bullish on the space. I, I think uh, you know, the NFT episode we did was helpful for a number of people that I've linked it to, or at least that, that's what they told me. But fundamentally, the thing that always wins them over is when I say, imagine if your NFTs could do stuff. We could argue all yep. day whether or not collectibles are worthwhile or worth the energy or whatever else. Collectibles are collectibles, but assets that can also do stuff to generate more assets or a return on your asset that's uh, that's kind of cool. That's like some new kind of DeFi-driven shit that we've been talking about. And gaming just feels like such a perfect application to that. You know, And we've seen it in so many other games already. They just don't enable the third-party marketplace the same way the Axie Infinity world has. You, know, you see it in World, Warcraft, world of Warcraft with gold farming. There's a huge market yep. for farming gold and selling it on the side. Like, these kind of economies are bread and butter for a lot of gamers. Like we have a very innate understanding of these concepts just from playing games like RuneScape, dude. That's like a, a crash yep. course in in finance right there. That, that that's really oh, what yeah. that game is. So everything um, everything that I know about finance came from the World of Warcraft auction house, <laughs> dude. Seriously, uh, Diablo mean, three, yeah. re literally real money auction house. I mean, that was actual yeah. just economics. That's yeah, <laughs> yeah. And I mean, it's like. It's wild that we're only just now getting the tooling and technology to build a, a more open version of this stuff. Because it, like yeah. you said, I mean, it's been around for a while. Like this is, has been an area that gamers have, uh, have been interacting with since the beginning. And, that, and I really do believe that uh, projects like um, Axie Infinity and just everything that's happening in this space, I, I think it's going to unlock... Uh, all tons of new things that you can do uh, and just a whole different way to think about money, a different way to think about gaming. Um, just e even I, I usually describe Axie as that. It's just like, you know, Pokemon that you can earn money when you battle. And it's like, oh, yeah. that sounds awesome. Exactly. Uh, yeah. And um, if you if you want to dive deeper, I did a Zayori Plus One podcast this morning with uh, my boss, the COO of the company. Uh, his handle is PsychOut86 on, on Twitter and elsewhere. I uh, was really happy with that interview today. And we talked about all, all sorts of different aspects of the game and the economy and different stuff like that. So uh, on the same YouTube channel right here, when you're done with this podcast, 
you can check out that one. But all right, enough about me, Kevin. Well, maybe we'll do a whole episode on Axie Infinity and like NFT games and what that looks like uh, in the not too distant future. But today we are talking about the automated market makers, the decentralized exchanges of the future. And this is where the big stuff really happens. All this foundation we've laid today, we're talking about Probably one of the biggest applications when it comes to DeFi and um, understanding all this blockchain Ethereum stuff. Yeah, it's it really is one of the most important innovations that was sort of necessary to to come out of of DeFi as like uh, without the ability to exchange money and exchange crypto in a peer to peer fashion without trusted third parties, you can't really do a whole lot in a decentralized financial system. So this was. This was the big one and one that uh, I, I would say the uh, smart contracts episode helps to understand a bit. Uh, you know, as usual, Ethereum is always a good one to to have watched prior to this episode. Um, but yeah, I, I mean, we've we've mentioned a few of these uh, projects in the Dow episode as well. Mm -hmm. But uh, a quick update on like how the market has gone in our last episode. We were talking about how crypto uh, is going through its its big dip, and you know prices are still down. Um, the the Wednesday two weeks ago, where everything crashed, uh, most U.S. exchanges went down. Uh, so. Binance, Coinbase, Coinbase Pro, Kraken, Gemini, Robinhood. These were just the ones that I happened to look at to see if I could trade crypto. Uh, and all of those were down. And uh, what was interesting is that DeFi exchanges, decentralized exchanges, automated market makers, they did not go down. Uh, not a single one, actually. Um, they became very expensive to use, perhaps prohibitively so for most people, myself included. Um, but like, that's a scaling problem that, that we were working on solving long-term. Um, so yeah, I think it's, it's worth diving in and, and understanding a little bit more about why it was that they were able to not go down and, yeah. you know, what sets apart, um, automated market makers from traditional market so, makers. Sometimes I feel like we're like the masters of nuance because the outcome was pretty similar. Like they were uh, rendered effectively unusable as were the centralized exchanges, but fundamentally it's a different mechanism that rendered them inaccessible. The centralized ones basically got dosed by the users. Too many people tried to access them all at once. They all got taken down. It's just like that network effect of everybody trying to buy the dip at the same time. It's like a run on the bank the other way and the exchanges can't handle it. The decentralized exchanges, they were technically still usable the entire time. They never really went down. It's just the network can't handle that much traffic. So the gas fee spiked. It was like over a thousand or something, which I mean, even a hundred yeah. would be considered high gas fees. So it was absurdly expensive to use the network. But the it's important I to know. Even yeah, the highest I saw was like 1,900 guay, which oh, wow. I, that's I think like... we, we talk a little bit about gas fees in the Ethereum episode, but that's like thousands of dollars to do a trade on yeah. <laughs> on something like Uniswap. So prohibitively, <laughs> essentially was down. Uh, yeah, go ahead. Yeah. But technically, they still worked. And that's like if the Ethereum network can scale better, and we know it can, and once more of those layers are implemented... Um, these decentralized exchanges will stay stable in those kind of moments of chaos relative to the centralized exchanges that we're also reliant on. So I, I think it's a nuance worth spending a moment to split some hairs on. Yeah, and it's it's important to understand why uh, DeFi exchanges were able to stay up, although the costs were very uh, high. In a centralized exchange, you have a single company that owns some servers and they can 
quickly try to spin up new servers when new load comes along and, and you know there's this crazy spike um but in general it's it's like any other website that you go to a, a lot of uh, most websites can't handle insane spikes um and with ethereum you know there's a copy of ethereum on thousands of different computers around the world so it, you don't have to hope that one particular company spins up new servers to handle load ethereum is accessible to everyone everywhere mm. um so with that in mind continuing forward solving scaling problems using layer two solutions uh that we'll talk about in future episodes you can you can get to uh, appreciate this idea of like versions of the internet that and, and websites and applications and services that like don't understand the concept of downtime right right well that is but the let's goal. Yeah, let's let's take a second, go through some definitions like we love to do at the top of the episode. Uh, before we start to understand automated market makers, let's take a second and, and talk about what we mean by market makers, because market makers are not new to crypto. It's just a, a term from the financial world that means that it, it's a company or institution that provides trading services for investors. Market makers use what's called an order book to facilitate financial markets and keep them liquid while charging a fee in the process. And what what all of this means uh, is just you think of any any exchange, you think of the New York Stock Exchange, you think of Coinbase, um, any institution that's job is to make markets, to put two sides together, buyers and sellers. Mm -hmm. Those are market makers. Yeah, it's just somebody that, that connects, like you said, those two sides. And you can see this function in a lot of different economic systems, right? Like I always like to go back to the Uber example. You got riders, you got drivers. The magic is that the app finds people at the right place at the right time to connect them really efficiently in a way that they wouldn't really be able to do uh, otherwise. That's pretty much exactly what these exchanges are doing. Uh, let's take a look at one of the order books here. I, I love this uh this screen cap because well it's it's moving. I love looking at these kind of websites because it seems so overwhelming at first. It's so many numbers, so much data. You've got all this crypto. You got a ticker up top with advertisements. You got the candlesticks uh, showing you the actual uh, price movements of. In this case, we're looking at Ethereum versus the U.S. dollar. But then at the bottom, uh, all the the red and the green lines that are constantly moving here. That's your order book, and what that's showing is the live feed of users on Bitfinex in this situation that are putting in orders to sell and putting in orders to buy. And you can see them kind of stacked in this pyramid like that because um, it's showing you the amount of orders um, relative to how close they are to the point that's being matched right now. So when you get to that top of that pyramid where the green and the red meet, that's when orders are kind of matched. And on the other side, it's showing you that kind of log of people that are either waiting to sell or waiting to buy. So you can see it kind of fluctuate and that's what determines the price, at least on this exchange, is the amount of buy and sell orders on either side of the equation, constantly pushing it up in these little micro adjustments. Yeah. That's a good explanation. It's uh, and it is yeah. it's really mesmerizing yeah. to watch. Uh, <laughs> um, yeah, yeah it, like it's so one thing to understand. Uh, I mentioned the term uh, to keep markets liquid. Uh, you'll hear the term like liquid or liquidity uh, a lot in finance, and and it really just means like a market is liquid if the currencies or assets can flow between both sides easily. Uh, they they can be easily exchanged for each other. Um, so if you think of like something that is not very liquid, you know, something where you only own one of a thing and uh, you can't really easily exchange that at any given time. But if you it's something like Ethereum to USD, um, if a if a 
an exchange has enough users, has enough volume, then that can be a pretty uh, uh, liquid pair. Yeah, it's just like the kind of colloquial colloquialism. I always struggle to say that word uh, of being like saying I'm not liquid right now. It's kind of like saying I'm cash poor. You, I'm I'm not poor. Like I have assets that are worth a lot of money, but all of my cash is tied up in the stock market or projects or investments. You say I'm not liquid right now, right? I own a lot of things that are worth a lot of money, but they're tied up in things that I I can't just like turn into cash tomorrow. It's like a project investment, and I don't see the return on that for another year. That would be a situation where you're not liquid. So a bank is the same way. If they don't have enough cash to uh, cash you out, then they would not be liquid. That's, you know. Yeah. Yeah. And so that finally brings us to this concept of automated market makers. Um, and this is this new alternative to market makers. Um, instead of using an order book, which is what we just saw, where you match individual buyers to individual sellers, Automated market makers use this new concept, which is called a liquidity pool. Um, and so a liquidity pool, you can think of similar, uh, similarly trying to achieve the same thing, uh, but it does it in an entirely different, uh, different way. So um, I, I believe we have a, a, a little diagram here, but essentially uh, liquidity pools are pairs of assets. So a, a really basic liquidity pool would have two assets, something like ETH and DAI would be a good example. So if you want to be able to swap between uh, ETH and uh, and be able to purchase DAI, purchase essentially a US dollar stablecoin, then um, you can go to this liquidity pool, you put your ETH in it, and the amount, the value of the ETH that you put into the pool uh, will allow you to take an equal value amount of DAI out of the pool. Um, and the way that it works is uh, through what are called liquidity providers. These are people like you and I, anyone that wants to lend their, um, their crypto to earn interest on it. Um, and essentially, the idea of a liquidity provider is you can say you have some ETH lying around, you have some DAI lying around that you know you're not going to sell, you're not really using it, and you want to earn some interest on it. You can go provide liquidity through an automated market maker uh, and earn interest. So anytime a person wants to make that trade, change their ETH to DAI, uh, they pay a small fee to the liquidity providers uh, for the act of lending their their okay. ETH and their DAI. All right. So l let me see if I, I got this straight because that it seems complicated and I actually can't pull up the visual for some reason because it's embedded in that document and I can't seem to get it out despite copying and pasting my heart out. Um, no worries. <laughs> I think it, we have others in the Uniswap, uh, in the Uniswap section. We'll pull something up in a sec. Yeah. Um, but basically the exchange is just a, a glorified smart contract. It just says, Hey, this side, this side, they want to connect and make trades when the price agrees within these thresholds. But then to do that, somebody has to put up the money to make it liquid so that if you know you, you open up the exchange, I come in and say, hey, I've got 10 ETH that I want to turn into Kevin coins. And they go, oh, that's cool. We've only got three Kevin coins and you want 10 Kevin coins. 
So sorry, man, we can't fill that order. That means the exchange is borderline useless. So you have to scale it up by being able to have enough liquidity in the background to service the orders of like thousands of people all happening at once and be able to handle these kind of crazy swings as maybe a lot of people want to cash out of one coin or move into another coin. You, you need to be able to handle this moving equation of liquidity across all these different pools. So if, if you're the exchange, you th that's the whole point. Like a centralized exchange... They like Coinbase, they just have all this in the coffers. They have a shitload of Bitcoin, they have a shitload of Ethereum, and that is the liquidity pool. They are the centralized exchange, they own it. But in this case, since it's decentralized and it's just a smart contract, there has to be some way to hook in users to provide that liquidity. So users do that, and then it's it's basically like a loan for the users, so they get paid back what would be considered kind of like interest for putting their money in the pool and letting the smart contract use it as liquidity to fill the orders. So it's like this system ties all the parties together and kind of lets them move money around and just pay people fees to facilitate it. And it ends up being a good deal for the people that are providing liquidity because it's relatively low risk and relatively high return for the risk. And for people on the other side, it's amazing because you get really low fees to switch around basically any coin that you want that there's liquidity of. Yeah. I think yeah. I got that right. That's, yeah. that's a pretty powerful yeah. concept, though. Yeah, it really is. And it's important to understand that one distinction that exists between a centralized exchange and a decentralized exchange, often referred to as a SEX, C-E-X, or a DEX, D-E-X. <laughs> okay. Uh, is that a DEX uh, does not have this centralized intermediary that is taking fees out of the system. So when we think of Coinbase or any other centralized exchange, they are sort of extracting value from the network, whether it's, you know, they're extracting Ethereum, they're extracting DAI, they're, they're taking value out mm -hmm. of this network of, of users that are all trying to just they're exchange They're making their a currency. profit. Yeah, it's a for-profit exactly. endeavor. Yeah. Yeah, with a DEX, you don't have to do that. You can have these fees that get paid back out to the liquidity providers. And so you don't have these extractive third parties that sort of like must require uh, removing value from the network in order to function the network. So now, I mean, this is a more efficient way of making markets. Mm. This is like, uh, I keep thinking about that Office episode where Dwight gets kicked out of the mall because they uh, think his beat-stained hands are blood-stained hands, and they come <laughs> back and Creed says, let's just make our own mall, man. And uh, they kind of just ignore him as the you know, kind of the crazy guy in the back. But this is actually that of like, these banks are ripping us off. Why don't we go make our own bank, man? Like, that's, yeah. that's literally what this is. Like, man, those fees like on Coinbase are too high. Well, Okay. That, that's what this is. And then the fees end up just going to other people that are in the ecosystem. That's that's brilliantly amazing. Yeah, yeah, it definitely is. Uh, so let's go through the quick history of this, because, again, okay. it's a pretty quick history. All of this is pretty new. Um, so Bancor was technically one of the first automated market makers. It was founded in 2016. Um, and I, I think of it a little more as like a prototype to a decentralized exchange. Um, I think there is right. like at the launch, maybe some amount of centralization, but it kind of like introduced this idea of a liquidity pool, automated market maker. And, um, you know, Bancor still exists today, um, but it was pretty quickly um, 
uh, I would say dwarfed by uh, another uh, decentralized exchange that's called Uniswap. Um, and we've oh, talked about boy. Uniswap in the DAOs episode, um, and I'm wearing my Uniswap shirt today. Uh, and yeah, so DeFi was really the first, like, DeFi, I'm sorry, the first automated market maker uh, that, like, just got really popular. So it was founded in November of 2018, um, and it really just began as this idea that came from, like, a tweet or a blog post from Vitalik, the founder of Ethereum. Uh, and this kid, uh, Hayden Adams, was like not a programmer, not really super into crypto yet or just getting into it. And he was like, yeah, you know what? This idea of this like automated market maker thing, this sounds pretty neat. Like I'll try it out and build it. Uh, and then he ran with it. And now it's like a multi-billion dollar protocol mm -hmm. <laughs> that exists uh, on Ethereum. Yeah, it's um, amazing. The the innovators, they're in it for the love of the tech, not for the fat gains. And then they're the ones that end up getting the fattest of the gains, dude. That's how that's, it always goes. That's often the case. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, right. So aside from the Uniswap website, we do have a, a little how Uniswap works section here. And it's got a couple images here that might be helpful as we're talking through this idea of an automated market maker or a liquidity pool. Okay. Um, so yeah, the first image is essentially this idea of a Uniswap pool. It shows uh, a liquidity provider on one side and a trader on another side. Um, and it just shows this idea of you've got two tokens in a pool and um, it, it's like a very basic outline of, of what a liquidity pool looks like. And so anytime a trader interacts with the pool, they're, they're interacting with that smart contract. They're moving, putting more of token A in there and maybe taking out some of token B. And I, there's this concept called LP shares, which are just liquidity provider shares. So essentially, uh, let's say I want to put up, you know, two stable coins, USD Tether and uh, USDC, and um, you're putting that pair into the liquidity pool. You lock that up in the contract, and the contract gives you back some sort of LP share or LP token that's representative of the value that you put in. And then sometimes in these pools, you can do stuff with those LP shares where you can reinvest those for some additional dividends, stuff like that. Um, so th don't be confused by that. It's basically uh, you have to exchange some units of value because your, your Ethereum or your UST or whatever it is that you're providing liquidity for, you can't access it when it's locked up. It's locked right. up in this contract and you're saying, hey, you guys can, it's like a bank, you know, hey, this is in my savings account. While it's in my savings account, you guys can loan it out, make interest, do whatever the hell you do. But, you know, when I want it back, I want it back and you better fucking have it when it's there. But in this case, it's, you know, it's locked up but, so you can't touch yeah. it. So savings and account so was actually a bad example, but yeah it, yeah but the same that's the general premise of it uh yeah and and therefore this liquidity provider token this pool token that they give you back that's sort of the iou that you can go take back to them later mm -hmm. and they'll give you back your initial collateral yeah uh, cool okay so yeah the next image here um goes into a little bit more detail um about what's called a token bonding curve and and there's like there's a little bit of math here that you don't really need to worry a ton about unless you're super interested. You can look into this on your own. Um, but essentially what this is showing is that, um, you know, in that example that Andrew gave where you, you have a, a, a pool that maybe doesn't have a ton of a token and you want to trade, you know, a large percentage of the pool that exists. Uh, one thing that this uh, protocol and other AMMs will do is 
it tries to figure out and, and come up with the best price to give you based on the, the value of the tokens that exist in the pool. And so if you try to trade more tokens than exist in it or like a large majority of the pool, the price of that token will begin to climb exponentially. It will become very expensive if you want to take a large portion of the pool. And the idea here is an efficient market maker would be one where um, many individuals and just many uh, trades are occurring and the price might shift a little bit here and a little bit there um, along this token bonding curve. And um, this, uh, what's called slippage is where anytime that uh, you're making a trade, the price moves a little bit. Um, and if you're making a trade with a large portion of a pool, that slippage is going to grow very, very quickly. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. So yeah, and it, it's sort of like a mechanism of you don't want really big users to be able to come in and just clean out pools on some sort of linear scale on like a one to one. You want there to be some let's call it a punishment where if you're taking 50% of the liquidity or something out of a pool, um, the, the price that you get it at is on a, a much, it's like a sliding scale where it's worse for you if you're taking a huge portion of the pool. So some of it is just stability for the system because the system is reliant on the stability of the system. So like one systemic failure can lead to like a, a run on the bank the other way where people get scared and you can have like, it, it's not exactly a run on the bank, but the same logic the other way where if everybody pulls out, if half of the liquidity just disappears overnight because everyone gets scared and pulls it out because they think the exchange is going to go under, that could lead to a cataclysmic outcome where the exchange does go under because it doesn't have enough liquidity. So it, there, you have to put some mechanisms in place to, to add elements of stability, right? Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And the final picture here on here is essentially just showing this idea of like you make a trade and after the trade that that slippage occurs and the price moves just a little bit. Uh, and you think of this like any other uh, market when when you buy an asset that's going to increase the price and when you sell an asset that's going to decrease the price ever so slightly. So that's kind of a high level overview about, you know, how Uniswap works. A lot of automated market makers uh basically fork off of Uniswap. So when I talk about AMMs, you can really use Uniswap as sort of a good example here. Um, yeah. But, and yeah. this is, so I, I want to take a moment here, Kevin, because th this is a, a, this was a big point for me in my crypto learning journey was understanding that there's this really weird, like game theory thing that happens around environments that are basically all open source. So Uniswap is this amazing thing that somebody creates. And then as soon as it's out there and it becomes successful, a lot of people start trying to reverse engineer it. And you start reverse engineering it by going copy, paste. Okay, let's break it and fuck around with it to see which things do what, right? But it starts yeah. with that fundamental. Oh, cool. Bah! This is in our library now. Um, and that has happened multiple times over in a lot of other ways. Like we're going to talk about some of these other scaling solutions in DeFi in upcoming episodes. And like there are clones of Ethereum now that are, it's like Ethereum, but it's a clone network. And it's like the same address, same everything, but you work on this other network. And at first you're like, why is this the same but different? And then you go back and understand it's like because they literally copied it because it was the same and then they tweaked it to make it slightly different. But because it's copied and pasted, it can kind of talk to each other and work in a similar way that 
um, we're all a little bit used to. And there's also some safety in that, right? This whole law is code type mentality. If there's an a, established exchange that's done X amount, you know, billions of dollars in transactions, you feel pretty good that that code is probably decent. So why reinvent the wheel and risk uh, introducing other bugs into a system that already has fleshed out a lot of bugs and has a lot of hours working in its favor? So um, anyway, th this is maybe where it starts to get uh, a little hinky as we start talking talking about side chains and stuff because it's really like the same software just duplicated onto different platforms owned by different people with very slightly different like missions and lenses on what makes a good exchange maybe slightly different tokenomics and reward structures um, but it is like a little bit confusing and sometimes I think it's important to uh, it reminds me of when you mentioned like the Bitcoin network and the Bitcoin token have the same name and that's part of the confusion of like nobody came up with a naming convention it's objectively can it's not you it's not you it's the system that we created it is confusing and you got to just yeah. just deal with it you know yeah. i think this is similar territory that's why we're 14 episodes into the yeah. series and we're only <laughs> just now like really getting into DeFi. uh there's yeah. just a lot to learn as you're getting into this space um so in the stable coins episode we talked about a project called ampleforth and then uh what was called a community fork that occurred off of it called yam and it took essentially what you just described they just took the code uh ran with it made their own thing and part of what makes it a community fork is this idea of removing any like venture capital funding any uh initial ownership from it and trying to create essentially like uh, this open alternative. So SushiSwap was the first uh, popular community fork of Uniswap. And so they took Uniswap, uh, the, someone, this, this, this founder, his name on Twitter, he's an anonymous founder, his name is Chef Nomi. Um, he took it, copy pasted it. Uh, only change he really made was that he removed any initial like uh, ownership of, of funds, uh, I guess there was no uni token at this prior to it. So there wasn't anything to remove there. Uh, but he created this concept of like a dev fund where a very small portion of fees would go toward this dev fund. Uh, and it also introduced this new token, the Sushi token. And it was using this as a mechanism to incentivize liquidity providers to come bring their money over to SushiSwap as an alternative to Uniswap. Because at the time, the Uni token didn't exist. There wasn't a, as much incentive when there's this alternative that pops up that's like giving you free money to go put your liquidity in there. Um, and, you know, it, it exists today, but like during the... Uh, during the very first two weeks, it was it had a rocky start because what occurred was uh, the Chef Nomi, the founder, created this this uh, developer fund. It filled up with like millions of dollars. I forget what the amount was off the top of my head. It's like 20 million, 200 million, something like that uh, worth of sushi token. And within about a week of the launch of Sushi, it, it, it had so much liquidity. It pulled like half of the liquidity out of Uniswap dumped it into sushi swap uh and this guy or gal just rug pulled he just sold all of his sushi tokens uh dumped it all in the market the sushi price crashed uh and that was the first really big rug pull in DeFi. <laughs> uh it was a fun couple weeks yeah 
Um, but the, the platform did stick around, and uh, it's still there paying out uh, comparatively big rewards uh, to Uniswap. And there is an interesting little story there where SushiSwap sort of pushed Uniswap into creating a token just to keep up with the rewards to bring some of the users back. Um, but the way they did that, there I don't know if we mentioned this in a past episode, but there's sort of like a, a meme that this was a time during COVID when the American government was doing a really bad job getting relief passed, or at least meaningful relief to most of the population, and Uniswap launched their token. And I think when it dropped, what was they gave 400 tokens to anyone that had used the platform at least once. So like any wallet yeah. that was connected to Uniswap just got airdropped 400 Uniswap tokens. And when it dropped, they were worth like dollars each. This wasn't like a one cent yeah. penny. I mean, they were like two dollars or two fifty or something. So effectively they gave, you know, over a, a couple thousand, thousand a couple thousand yeah. USD, maybe it was even like five bucks or something, um, to every user of Uniswap. And that's not something like you don't use Uniswap with that in mind, but it ends up being a, a pretty damn nice little perk. These airdrops, um, especially this like retroactive airdrop, where you uh, you know you give your original users uh, uh, some value for for their time and for their effort and for their money. Um, and, but Uniswap was the biggest one at the time, and I mean it might still be in terms of like total value that was airdropped. Mm -hmm. um, DeFi is nuts. I mean it's really one of the few fields that exists that will literally pay you to learn about it uh like i can't think of anything else that really works in that way yeah. um that just you know you, you go try some stuff go play around uh, with some protocols and suddenly you have more money in your wallet yeah so Strange. we've got even more of these though now so there's more of these swap exchanges one of the newer ones that uh, i've come across is actually the first one that i ever did liquidity mining on is called quick swap and this one exists on the Polygon network. Polygon is a clone, not exactly a clone, but it's a, it's a, a layer two scaling solution um, that is sort of interchangeable with uh, Ethereum in a lot of ways. It, it's a, a totally separate network, but you can bridge stuff onto that network. So of course, new network, you got yourself a new exchange uh, and they've got their own rewards token. You go to the Dragon's Lair, get yourself some quick tokens, turn them into D-Quick tokens. Um, you know, again, very similar to these others, just copied and pasted for another platform. And uh, I remember talking to Trent about some of this, my uh, Dota co-caster, and he started laughing uh, because this one, Pancake Swap, this is the Binance Smart Chain version. Again, same exact concept, just a different brand. They've got their syrup pools here where you can stack your cake, uh, sorry, stake your cake tokens. Um, it's a tongue twister, I know. I've even heard people say like, I don't care how good it is, I would never trust my money with somebody named Pancake Swap. So, uh, you know, branding does matter when it comes to some of this stuff, Kevin, I have to admit. I mean, I mean, at the same time, though, like how how cool is it to have some of your money tied up in a pancake token? Uh, I don't own any. Cool, cool or stupid. I actually do own some cake tokens. I'm embarrassed yeah. to admit. So th there you no, go. Nothing buddy. embarrassing. I mean, I, we're going to talk about a lot of these uh, in the scaling episode coming up. Um, you know, th there's a few different ways that we can scale DeFi. And some of these ways are these these side chains. Um, quick, swap, quick swap is actually a side chains, not an L2. I, I oh, messed up in the notes there. I'm but sorry. the, uh, you know, Pancake Swap is over on Binance Smart Chain. There's a lot of different visions, a lot of different ways that this might potentially play out and it might be multiple ways but yeah we'll, we'll dig into that a bit more a couple more to just quickly list off here um the, we have gone from you know very simple exchanges 
to more specialized AMMs uh, since the inception of Uniswap. So an example of this is like Balancer. Um, it introduced this concept called a smart pool. Uh, it essentially allows you to set specific ratios for pools. Um, so typically in a, in a liquidity pool, you have like kind of a 50-50 of each token value in there. With Balancer, you can do kind of neat stuff. Uh, and, and there's like there's a whole list of features that they're working on. Another thing that they do is interesting to incentivize usage of balancer. They will pay you in balancer tokens for the gas that you spend uh, while interacting with balancer. So, you know, gas uh. fees are, are high at times, but if you're going to get paid back all of that value in balancer token, it's not a bad idea to incentivize liquidity. That's pretty cool. Um, yeah, and the final one here that we'll chat about today is called Curve. Um, again, sort of a specialized AMM. It's specific to stable coins, um, so it's it's very focused on like trying to have like highly efficient liquidity uh, for uh, being able to swap to things that are worth a dollar. So it's like very very uh, focused in on, on that. Yeah. Niche, yeah, but still, it's a cool idea. Hate the interface, but that's a, a conversation for uh, <laughs> another day, perhaps. Yeah, uh, I'm sure I'm I'm not alone there, but um, yeah, yeah, pretty cool okay. stuff here, Kevin, in, in these automated market makers. The, this to me, like this this episode has a, a soft spot in my heart because I've recently come around to really understanding DeFi. Like I was one of those people. I think the first time you asked me about DeFi, like what do you know about it, and I said. I saw something about really high interest rates. The numbers were so big, I thought it must be a scam, and I stopped doing research past that. And I think you laughed and went, okay, that's reasonable, but maybe if we learn a little more beyond just like the little <laughs> tiny tip of the iceberg, we'll see that there's some pretty cool stuff going on here under the hood. And I didn't, yeah. it didn't click until I tried it, and um, yeah. then things started falling into line, and I started realizing the potential. So... Um, I, I feel like the automated market makers are one of the first things we're talking about that's actually like touchable for the average listener. Yeah. Something that you could put like, especially now that gas fees are low, you could put $100 of ETH um, into a MetaMask wallet and just start playing around with these protocols. Um, that's the cool thing, right? You can put a dollar into a vault. Uh, you're not going to make very much in interest, but if you just want to see how it works, if you want to confirm that it's real and that you can withdraw the money again, you can totally do that. I did that and before any large investment. I always do the five dollar trade. I'll burn that thirty dollars yeah, in gas just to just so I have the peace of mind <laughs> to know that I know how to deposit and withdraw, and I got it back in my account. I need to know that before yeah. I move, you know, like a, an ETH or some like real real amount of money. Yeah, I mean, this is really the first episode in the series where we're getting into things that you can go off and do on your own, uh, and like. Uh, the, uh, the I saw a tweet recently that I really liked. I forgot who who sent it, but it was um, it's basically like that. There's only really one uh, online class about DeFi that's like worth doing, and it it costs money, and you pay it in gas on Ethereum. Like you just have to do it. Like that's <laughs> you have to interact with this stuff to really appreciate it and to understand it. Because we could sit here and talk all day about this idea of like you know removing middlemen and earning interest and and all of this. And like it all sounds good on paper. Maybe it sounds scammy to some. Um, but like until you're actually interacting with DeFi, uh, you really can't get the sort of appreciation that is necessary to to see where this stuff's going. Um, totally. And yeah, I mean, I, I just I think 
AMMs were sort of like the next necessary big building block that enabled a, a huge amount of DeFi um, that we're going to be talking about in future episodes. Is this the second DeFi summer, Kevin? I, I know we it already is. had a DeFi summer, but it feels like we're re-entering the next we phase are. of uh, the, the yeah. next bubble, whatever you want to call it. Bubble is a little bit of a tainted term, but uh, this yeah. next big like growth growth phase. I mean, even just seeing the Axie Infinity numbers, I had to keep updating my article with the daily active users because it's like, <laughs> It's going up by thousands every day. I, I stopped, it's, it's I stopped putting actual values for price or anything in our show notes. I just like leave a placeholder. It was like total value locks, like X amount. I, I'll, I'll put yeah, it in there because yeah. it's going to change by next week. Yeah, it, b- billions with a B. Yeah, um, but let's, let's get to the lightning round. Yeah, let's jump into some lightning round. Uh, one of the questions that I had was like trying to wrap my brain around the difference between regular market makers and automated market makers, the MMs and the AMMs. It's like we have, I get the centralized exchanges. I get the totally automated market makers. Who, who are these guys in the middle? Yeah. So uh, like, let's talk about the pros and cons here. Uh, market makers that have a centralized intermediary in there, that's all that has existed prior to about 2016. Uh, so that is like traditional finance how things work that is you take two sides of a market uh and and you take a fee out of it so um one of the pros of automated market makers is you 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 may still have a fee in there but that that fee gets paid back out to the network so it's it's fun interacting with an exchange where you know uh, uh, something like the eth die pair where i'm providing some liquidity to that like I'll, i'll pay a small fee and i'll actually in the process be paying some of that fee back to myself and that's not something i can do in in traditional finance um uh, one one uh, difference that exists between these two is this concept of uh, look of impermanent loss, um, mm. and this is an idea that uh, exists in automated market makers. Uh, it is essentially this side effect that comes with the current uh, implementations of liquidity pools that exist. So, uh, impermanent loss is this idea that. You know, we talked about, we saw on the token bonding curve where the price moves and uh, in, in there's like when there's slippage, the, the, the price will move different amounts. Um, when you have a token pair, something like ETH DAI, where you have a token that moves at a completely uncorrelated uh, direction than another one, something like a stable coin versus something like ETH, when ETH is skyrocketing, um, the, the price is constantly kind of moving along that token bonding curve uh, up uh, into a single direction. Um, and so that creates this concept of impermanent loss where um, the uh, holders of the liquidity provider tokens, the liquidity providers uh, that are in that pool, uh, they, they're they exposing themselves to the price fluctuations of both assets. So if I put ETH in that pool um, and, the, and ETH shoots up, uh, my ETH, essentially, you can think of it as sort of like turns into both ETH and DAI, sort of like a half and half. Um, and like I am sort of being weighed down to a degree by the USD because it's not appreciating at the same speed as ETH or it's not really at all. Um, and so impermanent loss is this sort of like known issue that exists. And there are um, there are ways to mitigate it. There are uh, even sort of like conversations around like, is impermanent loss like a thing that's permanent or is this something that like will be solved? Is there a solution to this idea? Um, in the meantime, we're seeing a lot of uh, protocols that will just pay the tokens of the AMM as a mechanism to offset the cost of impermanent loss. 
Um, but, you know, yeah, this is all still a couple of years old, so I'm not super worried about uh, the, the existing problems in the space because there's a lot of smart people that are working on it. Totally. Yeah. So uh, next question. Uh, we talked about a couple different exchanges and we talked about this idea of like, you know, quick swap or sushi swap that they're paying these pretty high percentages, uh, in their token to provide liquidity. Like why, why do they do that? How are they able to, uh, offer these like 10, 20, a hundred percent, uh, investments, uh, return on investments, I guess, uh, interest in prefer something as simple as providing liquidity. Yeah. So there's a couple things going on here. And you touched on part of it with the impermanent loss stuff. Some of those numbers in terms of APY are, are a, a return that is inflated to try to cover some of the losses for impermanent loss. And as you said, depending on the pair, um, there could be a lot or there could be a little. Bitcoin and Ethereum, they tend to move together, right? So if you were um, uh, putting up like uh, wrapped Bitcoin with wrapped Ethereum or something, they're probably going to be relatively steady next to each other, all things considered. But uh, the stablecoin example is a perfect perfect one where it's always changing and you're always having some loss or some gain uh, depending on, on how things are moving. Uh, you got to make up for that because you have to create an incentive for people to put liquidity into your pools if there's no incentive to do that or if people mostly just take impermanent loss that is greater than what you would get in fees, then there's no reason to do it and the whole thing can start to crumble. Um, think of it kind of like marketing. You need to get more people on, into your, onto your platform, into your pool. It's exactly what SushiSwap did. It's like we're paying a premium now. These are basically like marketing dollars. That's going to get the user base in. And then we're going to reduce the fees and what we pay out kind of on a sliding scale over time. And then it'll all level out. Once people are on the system, they're more likely to stay on the system. There's got to be some crazy shift or incentive for them to jump ship and go elsewhere. Um, and this is made even easier when you're paying out rewards in a token that you own, that you're controlling, that's being printed by your exchange. So in the case of QuickSwap, it's the Quick token. In the case of SushiSwap, it's the Sushi token. Um, think of it almost like a bank paying interest, but instead of paying interest in USD that we all share and the bank has no control over, the bank has its own currency that they're paying you the interest in. Um, and with that, they can control the kind of pump and dump economics behind the token. And if they want to issue more, issue less, or just say, hey, you know what? For this pair, we're tripling the rewards today. You can just print more and triple the rewards. And that will cause a little bit of a pump in the short term. That's kind of what we're seeing. I don't think any of these platforms are, are even pretending like, yeah, we're going to have 100% returns forever. It's just written down as an APY. And even a month from now, that 100% could be like 50% which is still a lot, but you know, it, it, it can change very quickly. So a uh, number of factors there, but mostly marketing. Yeah. And it's like likely long-term we'll look back at a lot of this and it's like probably inefficient use of uh, protocol currencies. Like we protocols yeah. are essentially throwing money to get people in the door. And once they're in the door, like maybe they'll stick around, maybe they'll they'll be sticky, maybe they just leave as soon as the the rewards aren't there. So uh, yeah. I think we'll see how how a lot of this plays out long term. But um, totally. Yeah. So uh, what are the other downsides and risks that exist with these automated market makers? Can these things just uh, implode at a certain point? Yeah. So I think one thing that's always worth reiterating is anytime when we're talking about anything that's like good because it's decentralized. Remember that decentralization is a spectrum. So uh, things like the the sushi swap um, 
uh, Chef Nomi rug pool can happen when there's a single developer that's working on a project. Uh, that is not like a decentralized protocol. Um, uh, but at least it wasn't when it started. And, and again, like it, the whole idea for these protocols is to try to decentralize themselves as much as possible so that other protocols can build on top of them. Um, so yeah, I mean, centralization, like exit scams, people that are just essentially trying to like pump and dump some new token. It, there's there's a million and a half Uniswap forks at this point. So like the ones that we've talked about have at least like, you know, been around long enough in terms of DeFi time and like have mm -hmm. sort of uh, acquired enough total value locked to like be worth even discussing. But, you know, there, there's a whole long tail curve of other exchanges that just like, you know, random scams. Um, I mean, another thing, uh, like we, we had mentioned this idea of like slippage and when a liquidity pool doesn't have enough liquidity, that's another scary one. Like when, uh, you have, uh, tokens that, um, you know, a protocol issues there, uh, one that I'm thinking of right now, uh, Uniswap created this token called socks that, uh, allows you to, uh, essentially if you purchase the socks token, you can burn it and redeem it for physical socks in real life. Um, <laughs> and uh, it doesn't have a lot of liquidity. So anytime there's like, I don't know what it is. It's like a hundred pairs of socks or something, it's, uh, maybe even less. Um, but anytime someone trades with it, the the price is just extremely volatile. Um, mm -hmm. It's like whatever they're, they're buying it at, it just moves. There's a ton of slippage. Um, and, and like the final one I'll say here is something that we're going to get to in a future episodes, but um, we can use these decentralized exchanges for price feeds in other protocols. So if I'm writing a protocol on Ethereum and I want to know like, okay, what's the current going price of, of Ether versus US, uh, US dollar, I could go look at the Uniswap Ether die pair and just see what that current price is. Well, if a whale happens to go like shove a bunch of dye into there uh, and like make this huge trade and the price goes crazy um, just so that they can sort of like take advantage of that price change over in my protocol, that sort of opens you up to this whole um, concept of what's called the Oracle problem. And we'll talk about this again, but um, it's essentially like uh, DEX price feeds are pretty dangerous to rely on, at least at this point. I think, again, this is all super early days, um, and there are these like other alternative solutions called oracles that have popped up around it. Um, but yeah, you know, there's like anything else in this space, there's there's plenty of risks from every direction, whether it's impermanent loss, sure. like slippage, centralization, we got it all, plenty of it. <laughs> Definitely. Um, you know, like, like we said, uh, now coming up on 50 minutes here, this is one of the first things that you guys can actually touch and start to play with. But uh, next episode, we're going to talk about DeFi more specifically, kind of from a broad stroke perspective. And I think these automated uh, market makers are another key piece of that foundation that are leading into uh, DeFi sort of co coming into its next form. You know, I feel like we've gone Super Saiyan and now we're, we're, we're coming up on like Super Saiyan level two, something like that, you know? Yeah, I mean, exchanges, uh, the ability to exchange currency is like a, a an incredible first step into DeFi, totally. but it is, it is only just the very beginning. There's so much more that comes next. Definitely. All right. Well, I think that's another one complete. Gang, you know where to find it by now. Zayori.tv for the audio action. 
jeez, uh, youtube.com slash Sayori TV. It's been a long day here, folks. We appreciate all your comments, all your subscriptions. Thank you for joining us down this blockchain journey, and we'll see you again next time for more DeFi conversation.